0: This is David Tarkington, lead pastor at First Family. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, go to firstfam.org or check out my blog at davidtarkington.com. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's an interesting shift from the conversation that had just happened in in Caesarea Philippi. I mean, really, to to say... uh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and, uh, and, and Peter to be declared as, as righteous in saying that, to be called Satan is a pretty dramatic shift in just a few verses. But when we think about this, it, t- it took me to this reality. In our It's not just a cultural thing. I think it's a human nature thing. We like winners. We've always liked winners. People like the victors. They, they like those teams in sports that win. They like the athletes that are victorious. They tend to like those that that win whenever they have a competition. And in sports especially, you may not be a a sports fan, but you you can't help but realize what happens in our culture. When a team starts winning, a bandwagon develops and more people start jumping on. Now, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and what I'm declaring now may never happen. But let's just say, for instance, the Jaguars win about 10 games in a row. Let's just go ahead Right now the Jags are undefeated. They have they have the they've had a winning record first time in 6 years, by the way. I looked it up. But let's just say they go 10 games in a row and they're 10 and 0. I'll go for 2 and 0 today, but 10 and 0. We'll shoot shoot for the moon. Why not go 16 cuz you know, let's keep it realistic. So 10 and 0. I promise you if they go 10 and 0, people start talking about them. Everybody makes fun of them. You know, little town, small market, weird helmets. I get it. You'll start seeing more people nationwide buying Jaguar hats. They may not like them for real, but they're going to like them for a season. Why? Because people jump on bandwagons all the time. All the time. You know, you'll see people, why are you wearing that shirt? Oh, man, because he's awesome. How long have you been a fan? 15 minutes. That's awesome. That's great. more. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Now, diehard fans are those diehard fans who love their team or love their athletes regardless. And diehard fans become apologists whenever their favorite team isn't winning. And you know this to be the case, whether you're a college football fan or a or a basketball fan or you like a, uh, games or individual athletes play when your team or your favorite athlete isn't doing well, a diehard fan will be an apologist, and there are many reasons why that team isn't doing as it should. It's usually the referee's fault. Could be, you know, the weather, a displacement. It could be our star athlete was injured or, or something just didn't go right. And there's a lot of excuses that come from apologists. But apologists also become critics very quickly. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Because you can be an apologist for about two games. But about five games in, the favorite player or favorite coach that was the winningest coach in the history of everything a week ago needs to be fired today. I mean, just kind of watch the college football world. Just watch it, and you see it. You know, the, Yeah, I know he's Hall of Fame, but he's, he's lost his touch, so we need to get rid of him, get another guy in. But, you know, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Because the answer and, and what people want, they want the win. And here's something else about, about sports fans especially, and I am one, so I'm talking about myself here. It really doesn't matter if you won yesterday. Nobody cares if your favorite team was the national champion in 1978. Except you and the people on that team that keep being dragged out of retirement for special events. Because it's all about today. Who won today? Who's winning? Now, it's the whole what have you done for me lately philosophy. Now, a few weeks back, I'm not a big boxing fan, but you couldn't help, I mean, even if you hate sports and hate boxing and the only boxer you know is Rocky Balboa, you couldn't help but know that there was a boxing match that took place uh, just a few weeks ago that, and the reason you can't, you probably couldn't help but know it because regular news was talking about it and entertainment shows were talking about it and sports radio was talking about it and it was Conor McGregor from MMA fighting Floyd Mayweather, uh, the boxing champion, 49-0 before the fight. Now, Conor and Floyd, uh, uh, Conor McGregor is an Irishman. He's never been a professional boxer, so he's going to box this professional boxer. And they made the uh, the whirlwind worldwide tour, posing with their money and cussing each other out and filling up stadiums and just doing ridiculous stuff. It was bad. It was dumb. But it worked. And they had millions and millions and millions of dollars bet on that fight. And if you kind of followed it on sports radio or in the conversation, you know, the talk, when there's nothing to talk about, they make up stuff to talk about, and then they argue with each other on the radio or on ESPN. So if you followed that, you kind of saw that game going on. And, oh, Conor McGregor is going to win. He said he's going to knock out Floyd Mayweather in four rounds. It's over. He's younger. He's stronger. He's taller. And others say, yeah, but Floyd's 49-0 and 0 and has been doing this for a living. And this and that. And that. So he's got this argument back and forth. So the fight takes place. And uh, spoiler alert, already happened, uh, Conor lost. The next day on sports radio and all the conversations, it was amazing. It's no surprise, it always happens, but the fans of Conor McGregor, the loser to the professional boxer, changed the guidelines and the boundaries and declared the loss of victory. That's what we do. Well, you know, he was, he was fighting a professional boxer. He wasn't supposed to win, but he lasted longer than he should have, so that's a win. Well, those two guys walked out of the ring with a lot more in their bank account. I can tell you who the winners are. But see, here's a... Here, Let me put in another story. Like So, for instance, I went to the University of North Texas. We are known for winning a football game every three decades. It's been amazing. No, we actually win. We a pretty good teams sometimes, but not much. It's a Conference USA team. So la- yesterday... North Texas, we have money games we play every year. Last year, thank you Florida. Thank you Florida for helping build our new stadium. I appreciate that. That was last year's donation. We love it when when North Texas plays the big schools and then pay us because then they quit calling me for alumni funds. So um, so North Texas yesterday was playing Iowa. Now Iowa's a big 10 school, not a great school, but we have one Iowa fan in our church that is a big time Iowa fan. That's Josh Dreyer. Now Josh is interim pastor now in Palm Valley, but he, uh, he called me and said, hey, we ought to watch this together. And I'm thinking, that ain't going to be fun. <laughs> that be fun for you. And then he said, we'll have food. And I said, I can, I can watch my team lose with free food. Come on. So um, I pulled out the old Mean Green T-shirt I had, went over to his house. Of course, he's wearing his Iowa shirt. And, oh, geez. But it was fun because in the first half, Iowa scores, they take away the touchdown. There's a penalty. The second... Then North Texas scores. We're up 7-0. Then Iowa scores again, and they take away the touchdown. And I'm the, the entertainment was not what was on the screen. It was who was on the recliner, and I'm watching it. Why is that a penalty? How in the world? What in the world is it? And I know my team, so I'm thinking we're good through three quarters, but come the fourth, eh, we get tired. We're young. That's why we're who we are. So North Texas loses the game, but... I walked away from that game, watching it with Josh, and I said, you know, I feel okay. It's how we redefine a win. We were supposed to lose by much more than we lost by. <laughs> right? We only lost by this amount. We won two quarters. Does that count? <laughs> no. Um, but what, because we love winners so much, you know, like the Conor McGregor fans or me, we redefine it. Just move the boundaries out it's evidence of what we've done in our culture, which, by the way, I think is really wrong and really bad. There's my personal opinion coming out. It's not inerrant. It's just me opinionizing. But we have developed a youth sports culture in America today where everybody's a winner and everybody gets a trophy. Now, you may think that's a good thing. Personally, I think it's atrocious. I think it develops a process where you have a generation of people thinking that just because they show up, they should get everything. That's not life. And the cult of self-focus and child worship has fed this beast, and the other one of win at all costs. And if you don't win, let's just redefine a win. I coached a soccer team. We scored one goal the whole year. That's it. We didn't win. We scored a goal. We all got a trophy, and you'd have thought we'd have won the Super Bowl. You guys are all winners. And I'm sitting there going, they're they're nice kids, but we're, we're a bunch of losers is what we are. We barely scored a goal. We're, we're, I got all the kids that never played before. They, everybody else recruited. Look at what, we have fun. But we didn't win the championship. Now they have a trophy on their table. Participant. Now, let me, I'll shift off that. It's not a sin to win. That's not the issue. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm just pointing out the fact that we as human beings, as a culture, we really like Winning. And, and we see it played out in a lot of ways. We see it played out in small competitions. How many of you, when the power went out, you found board games? Right? Or maybe you like board games. You know what board games are? I mean, Dre Lavenderos was texting me. He's, I said, how, how's your family? How are the kids? He said, the kids are freaking out. There's no Wi-Fi. They don't know what to do. I said, well, play a game. He said, they don't know how to play a game. We don't have Wi-Fi. A real board game. Oh, okay. But everyone knows that when you play board games, it, maybe you don't know, but it, it, I, I know this is the case for a lot of people, playing board games, playing games with a family or friends, there there's always seems to be that one person. I don't know who that person is in your family or in your life, and if you can't identify them, then you're probably that person, but that's the person that makes every game miserable for everybody else. The win at all cost. It's like, this is not life or death. You know, it's checkers, you know, it's trivial pursuit. Get over it, you know, but it's like, no, that's not the way it's played. And and everybody gets ticked off and mad because of that one person, because we've got to win. Same in politics, same in uh, sports, same in churches. I've seen this in churches. I I, I meet with a lot of pastors and church planners, and and I hope you, I don't know if you realize this is a reality. It's been a reality for generations But it's even more so now in the era of church planting. But there are concepts of new churches and church plants where church pastor pastors, men of God, leaders, anointed ones actually think it's a win if the other church in town loses. I don't know where this I know where it's come from. I know where it's come coming from. But you got churches that are being birthed off of, you know there are angry people starting churches. Let me just say, God doesn't bless angry church starts. I don't think God blesses church starts that are built on the foundation of we're the only cool people left and everybody else are losers. And I see that one too. Leave your church, come to ours. That is not a philosophy for church growth. That is not kingdom growth. That is of the devil. That is satanic. When a church Falsely believes it is succeeding because it is reaching the people that used to go to another church, and they're now dying. That's like killing your teammates on a team. Why would we think that's a win? So the lie is there. The false win is real, and that even happens within churches sometimes too. We used to call it Sunday school shifts. Our Sunday school has this many people. How many is yours have? Well, you know, come to our class if you really want the Bible. What? It happens because we like to win. So in the midst of this story, I'm thinking about this winning and losing concept. You see Jesus declaring the fullness of the churches prevailing against the gates of hell. He, he preaches against what the enemy is bringing to the church and against the church. He declares to his disciples something that's going to happen. He gives them a peek into the future and he says to them, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going into Jerusalem. They're going to catch, they're going to kill me. I will die, and I will rise again on the third day. Now, I don't know how much clearer he could have been, but in case you ever wondered if the disciples were surprised when Jesus died on the cross, the answer is yes, absolutely. But look back at this passage and ask yourself this question. Why were they surprised? He said it very clearly. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will die on a cross. I will rise again. But they didn't hear what he said. They couldn't believe he would even have the the concept of going there. To die was not even in their vocabulary. There's no way. He thought they were joking. He wasn't joking. And so they did not get it. They didn't get it. They did not expect this to happen. Let me ask this question, sports fans. Where is the best place for your favorite team to play its games? Home field. The home field advantage, right? Right? If you're a Florida fan, you want to play down in Gainesville. If you're a Florida State fan, you want to play in Tallahassee. I'm to, now I've started. I'm going to have to cover them all. If you're North Texas, you just want to be invited to the dance. So everybody wants to play at their home field. You know, Miami Marlins baseball, they're not able to play in Miami this week. So they're playing in a home series in Milwaukee. Did you see this on the, on the, on the news? They're playing a home series in Milwaukee. So what did the Brewers do? They brought in hundreds of palm trees and giant fish, and, 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 and they decorated their stadium as a gift to Miami, and then said, but please don't beat us. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's like this pretend home field. But we all want to play on the home field. So why is that a big deal? Because here's where I see the disciples re- reacting. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Their first response is, why? Why? The home field advantage is at Galilee. Northern Israel is the home field. Now, Jerusalem, Jesus goes there, but the majority of Jesus' ministry is in the northern part around the Sea of Galilee. What's happening in the Sea of Galilee region? Well, I don't know. Jesus shows up, 5,000 men come, plus women and children, and he feeds them. 4,000 men come, plus women and children, and he feeds them. Sick people come, they get healed. He starts walking on water out on the Sea of Galilee. There are a few Pharisees that show up and religious leaders, but there's not that many, and every time they show up, he puts them in his place. He is winning in the home court, at the home court at the home field why go to Jerusalem they don't like you there even more than those that don't like you here but at least up here it's kind of like our hometown now we're going to Jerusalem Jerusalem's where the temple is Jerusalem's where the Pharisees are Jerusalem is is where the the Roman government has its seat right now and he says that's where I'm going and they just the, the disciples are flabbergasted they have they cannot comprehend why in the world he would want to go to Jerusalem at this time. It is crazy talk. And so Peter, who just a few verses earlier, had been lauded for getting the right answer, this is what happens in verse 22. Let's look at it again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Here's a pause moment. Just kind of write this down in the back of your mind somewhere and remember this. It is not wise to rebuke God. Moving on. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. By the way, never tell God what he's going to do either. In verse 23, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now That's a shock. That's a hit. That's heavy. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is Peter, who just a few verses earlier said the right thing at the right time, and Jesus Lifted him up. He's a leader of the disciples. We already know this. He's going to play a prominent role in the in the in the church's movement. He and Paul and John and the other disciples. He gets the right answer, and just a few verses later, Jesus, God, Son of God, God the Son says, "You are Satan." That's pretty heavy. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever called you a name, but it doesn't get much worse than that. I look at it this. I'm going to give. I'm going to give. Uh, Peter, the benefit of the doubt, just going to give him the benefit of the doubt, because I think Peter's a lot like you and a lot like me at times. I don't know if you ever found this illustration in your life, but this is, I've, I've done this. You ever been in high school or junior high and the teacher's teaching something and asked for your response and, and asked the whole class this question, right? And it's a hard question and nobody seems to know the answer, but you think you know the answer, so you dare raise your hand. That's bold right there. Teacher calls on you, you give them the right answer right answer David way to go David's like whoo yes that's right anybody else want to carry my books are we good now alright I'm, I'm the smartest guy in the room and then the teacher asks another question and out of your pride and your arrogance that has just been developed by that one answer on that one question three minutes earlier hand goes up and you answer totally wrong oh Peter had a little bit of arrogance going into this. He's he's on a roll. He's on a winning streak. One in a row, right? And the second thing he says is embarrassing. So here's some things to remember as we kind of come to a close and wrap this up. Peter, leader of the disciples, in an attempt to say and do the right thing, slid into his own idea of what the right thing was. Here's the truth. Your good idea may not be a God idea. Oh, that, that, that hurts. Your good idea may not be a God idea. I found that I have found, fallen into this trap way too often because what Peter says looks like a winning statement. Oh, I'm toughing up. No, Jesus, you're not going there. Over my dead body, will they kill you? Get behind me, Satan. What seemed like a good idea was so far out of the realm of what God wanted to do, you didn't, you didn't even notice it. How could you miss this, Peter? A plan outside of God's plan will never lead to the glory of God. And I I know this is the case, and you know this is the case too, that every human being that you've ever met knows exactly what every other human being on the planet ought to be doing. Right? Everybody knows what everybody else should do. Everybody not in leadership knows what every leader of every church, of every business, of every sports team, of every whatever ought to be doing. Everybody's an expert on everybody else's business. Everybody has a good idea based on what, well, that's a good idea. That's what that, you know what that person ought to do? Well, I'll tell you what they ought to do. You ever have those conversations? Everybody knows what everybody else ought to do. And we are freely giving our ideas out. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting where everybody had a good idea. And it just ends up in a kind of a quagmire, right? You just don't know what to do. But good ideas in our own mind may be good. They just may not be God's ideas. And I I know right now in our Jacksonville Association, there are 29 to 32 churches right now that unless something dramatically changes over the next 12 months, they will not exist. We'll give them three years. But 12 months is the change time. It has to happen. We've met with them and some of these church some of the churches just really ought to shut down. Some of them ought to shut down and give their building to someone else. That's just a reality. Some churches have such bad theology, some have no theology. We're going to talk about that even more in our Wednesday morning studies, but, but ignorant of, ignorance of theology leads to some really bad issues in an individual's life, like worry and, uh, and pain and confusion, but it really leads a church down a bad path. So some of those churches ought to just quit trying to be a church. Then there are some other churches that, that are godly people and they're just trying really hard, but the problem is they're still running off the good ideas that worked 20, 30 years ago. I can't tell you how many meetings I've had with pastors and lay leaders and different organizations, different churches where they you know, well, you know what we ought to do? This work before, we, ought, we need a program, and they'll name some program. That, that's a good program. The problem with that good program is it is specifically designed to reach people that have been dead for 30 years. A lot of churches are running programs that are designed to reach people that no longer exist. They're good. They're not God anymore. They were good for a season. And so sometimes we have these good ideas. But if we're not reading the Word and studying the Word, and let me just go ahead, and, let me a little sidebar here. There is an epidemic of ignorance of the Word of God among the church. And in a loving way, I want to, I want to, I want to encourage you. If you are relying on me or your Sunday school teacher or someone else to read the Bible for you, and tell you what it says if we're the only ones if you aren't reading it if I'm reading it for you you're already far behind the curve on spiritual maturity you've got to read it you ha- I don't like to read that's a lie because people read stuff all the time I can't read maybe not a lie but we live in a world where British guys will read it to you on your phone it's really cool Whether you pick the guy with the right accent. It really sounds neat. So it can be read to you. But what we do is, is we spend time with what's valuable and what's important. And you've got to get into this because what happens is most of the issues that we're facing in the church, the, the, the church today, not just, but the church, universal church, when it comes to you know, redefinition of marriage, and gender identity, and confusion on salvation, and once saved, always saved, and what does baptism mean, and who gets to partake of the Lord's Supper, and who doesn't, and who should be a pastor, and who should. All those questions have been answered. There really are no new debates theologically. There's just a whole lot of people that never read the Bible. Oh, sidebar's over. So, your good idea may not be a God idea. Here's the next one. Your win... Your victory is God's loss. Your win is God's loss. Jesus continues and explains this in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a paradox. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, but that's why it works. Jesus throws right here for his disciples and for us the secret sauce. This is it. This is the secret sauce. This is, you want to win in life? You know, forget the, 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 forget the, uh, the charlatan preachers preaching false gospels of prosperity, a five easy ways to get your life together to be a better person. Forget all that garbage. Forget all the self-help stuff. Forget all the mantras you're learning. Here's the secret sauce. Here's the insider info, the secret play. This is the new offense that no defense can defend. This is the product release that's going to change the industry. This is it. This is the religious response that no other religion on the planet can claim because no other religion has this response. Because every other religion on the planet is about Not about life, not about hope, not about the eternal win for the glory of God. Every other religion on the planet is about self-focus, self-indulgence, and ultimately self-preservation. In the midst, let me just go ahead and throw this out as a a declaration. In the world of disasters, when hurricanes come through and the Christians show up doing the work, there are many Christians out there doing work right now. But here's the the difference, there are Christians who... Mudding out houses, re-roofing houses, and cutting trees, and serving neighbors in the name of Jesus Christ. There are false churches and cults doing the very same thing, but not in the name of Christ. They're doing it hoping that at the end of their life, God will say you did more good things than bad. We will stand arm in arm pulling mud out of a house with somebody that's hoping God likes them better because they did it. But we do it because we love our Father. And our Father says love people. We don't get to heaven because we do good works. We do good works because we know a good God. Other cults and false religions and even buildings with crosses on them. I'm seeing picture after picture on Facebook. And I'm saying, come do the work you at least you're breathing you can move a tree do the work but ultimately you need to understand god's not liking you more and you're not going to heaven because you moved a tree but thank you for moving a tree there is this huge rescue and relief shaming going on out there we need to understand why we do what we do you want to win you have to lose that doesn't work in our mindset of victory at all costs You want to come after me, Jesus says? you got to deny yourself. You know what you have to do if you want to follow me, Jesus says? You have to take up your cross. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean take up your gold cross and put it on a chain. That doesn't mean take up your cross on a t-shirt and wear it publicly. That doesn't mean put a nice little decorative one on the wall. All those things are fine, but that is absolutely the opposite of what Christ is speaking of. Jesus is saying this. You want to follow me? you got to die. That's how you follow me. you got to die. Your desires, your want to, for your sake, it has to die. Your plans, they have to die. Your rights, they have to die. Your church has to die. And your ministry has to die. Because your definition of when to the disciples was, let's stay in Galilee where the crowds are. That's got to die. Some of you are a little shocked that I said your church has to die and your ministry has to die. Let me just throw this one at you is what I mean by that. How many people do you know that have a ministry and are proud? You know, that's my ministry, quote unquote. I always push back against people that have a my ministry. Because once it becomes your ministry, I'm wondering if there's room for God to have any place in it. Well, that, you know, once you, once you are the cog that keeps the machinery of ministry going, it's not God's anymore. And once you are the only one keeping the church, if that's my church, I think our God's a jealous God. This is his church. So your church has to die. And your ministry has to die. Because once it's all about you, there's no room for two gods in that story. Almost done. You have to lose lose yourself in Christ. So good ideas may not be God ideas. Your win is God's loss. Your win is your loss, denying self has eternal benefits. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We hear this, we know this, we understand it up here intellectually, but there is a gap between knowing truth and doing what it says. We often don't act on it. The gospel message of good news is truly good in this harsh statement from Christ. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Jesus knows he's going to die. He's telling the boys, you want to follow me? you better get a cross. I'm getting one. He's prepping them for this. And here's the ultimate answer. All those others end in loss, but here's where the victory is. Christ's loss, Jesus' loss is our win. From an earthly perspective, Jesus lost when he died on the cross. From an earthly, If you're a disciple sitting in Jerusalem and you're saved, Jesus you've been following for three years is hanging on a cross and his body is now dead, in your mind, from your perspective, from that vantage point, that is a loss. Fortunately, we have the fullness of the gospel that reminds us three days later he came to life and defeated death. But from an earthly perspective, from the onset, it looks like a losing perspective. But if you go back to the inaugural statement of Jesus Christ, Luke 4, verse 17 through 19. Jesus goes back to his hometown, he comes back in, the initial ministry is being launched where he is declaring who he is, and, and the boys in the synagogue say, oh, it's Jesus, let him read for us. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled it, and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, the gospel. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, From the very beginning, Jesus knew he had come to live a life so that he may die. That is the good news. That is the purpose. That is the proclamation. Jesus made no halftime adjustments. The same game plan from the very beginning ran all the way to the end and is still victorious. And at the end of the story, as we've read, if you flip to the last page in the book, he wins. And because he wins and we are in him, we win. But from an earthly perspective, that win is only accessible when we lose first. You can't, I, I fear that, that, that Christianity has become a lot more of, let me, add, let me pray a prayer and add Jesus to my life. But Jesus says, all that stuff you claim is your life, that's got to die. You can't add me to that. Get rid of that.